The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. And the rest of us, we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, as we make our way through this wonderful gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. As many of you know, and if you're just visiting with us today, you've just learned that we are right in the thick of a merge. And I mean right in the thick of things. We are transitioning to a new facility, trying to get that facility together. It's a lot of hard work. Fortunately, there hasn't been a lot of hard work with the blending of the the staff and the members. It's been a wonderful blessing. The Lord has really brought us together as both a staff and a um, as members. But it's a lot of hard work putting everything together, all the, the logistics, all the, the, the construction that has to happen, things behind the scenes that are happening. You know it's hard. Bob's getting more gray hair. Uh, Cliff is more regularly covered in paint. Um, Justin's getting less sleep. Austin's getting less sleep. It's just, it's just hard work putting everything together. But if you were to have been in my house two and a half years ago, and listen in on a conversation that Amy and I had, you would have heard us talk about the potential of having our own facility. In fact, Amy had just come back from, uh, kind of just a sweet note of providence, Amy had just come back from a conversation. She had just met uh, Kelly Duran. And she came back from a conversation with her, and she got on the website, on the internet, and she looked up Creekside's uh, website and found this little Church Creekside Community Church got some information on it, and as she's looking it up, she turned to me and she said, do you ever think we'll have our own facility? And to my shame, I said, I don't think so. I don't, I don't see how it's possible. We are a church plant of, at that point, about 12 years, 10, 11, 12 years, um, needing to raise a massive amount of capital to make that kind of transition to our own facility, and I just said, Honestly, I don't see how it's possible. Well, fast forward two and a half years, and Bob's got more gray hair because we're right in the thick of a merge. (laughs) We are now blending with another membership in a wonderful, glorious way, and now we'll have an opportunity to use our own and have our own facility to use for the glory of God in that wonderful community of Cupertino, and we're looking so forward to it. But had you gone back two and a half years, you would have heard me say, I just don't think it's possible. It's not possible. And I should have known from Scripture that, in fact, God works that very way, doesn't he? He backs his people into a corner so that they will say, it's not possible. Except that he makes it possible. And that's the situation that we have in the conception of John the Baptist. The inconceivable conception of John the Baptist the foretelling of it here in verses 5 and following. But before we get into that, we have to ask, what was the political and religious climate? What was the setting here in Israel before we even get into this passage? Well, we tell, it tells us in the days of Herod, this would have been Herod the Great. He was commissioned by Mark Antony in the Senate to, to rule as one of the rulers of the region of the Roman Empire, its vast empire, and this is one of its occupied regions, and so they set up various rulers, and Herod was one of them, and he would have ruled probably starting in 
37 BC to 4 BC. Some date it from 34 to 4 BC, but wherever you take it, we're coming towards the end of his rule now with the start of this narrative. But Israel's an occupied nation. They're occupied by a foreign power, Rome, who has established vice rulers in various regions of its empire. And the king of Judea, he's not a king by, uh, he's not a Jew by birth. He's from Edom, which would have been south of Judea. But he is religious, somewhat religiously inclined uh, towards the Jewish religion. He had actually helped beautify and build up this temple that Israel had, had that Israel had rebuilt. It was the Rubbable's temple. It was the rebuilding of the temple. It was its second temple. And he'd actually helped add on to that temple and do a lot of building. And so he had some affinity. He was friendly to the Jews by and large in, in some fashion. But you just have to think about Israel where they're at now religiously. They'd gone from the heights of spiritual and material prosperity during the reigns of David and Solomon to humiliation and devastation during the exile. They had been drawn out of their own land because of their constant rebellion against the Lord, and they had been brought back from exile, though not to hear from a speaking prophet, or a writing prophet rather, for the last over 400 years. This is the situation that they're in, occupied by a Roman power, having come back from exile, kind of rebuilding things in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, but nevertheless not hearing from God for over 400 years. Where was he? That's the setting that we're in right here as we enter into verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, Israel is in a tough situation. But despite the years of silence, as some have called it, despite the years of silence, there were some faithful in Israel, believe it or not. There were some faithful. We know that there weren't many faithful. There are a lot who were not faithful to the Lord during this time. See, Israel had been cleansed of her idolatry. She had been humbled mightily. The Lord had led them into exile because of their idolatry. And post-exile, Israel had really gotten rid of handmade idols. But that didn't mean they were spiritually pure. In fact, the handmade idols had been replaced by the idols of greed, self-righteousness, spiritual pride, and so on. So as we enter into Luke's gospel, we'll actually hear about the religious leaders who were mired in the grossest kind of religious hypocrisy. So there was clearly still a large amount of unfaithfulness in Israel, though they had been cleansed from any, any physical remnants of idolatry. But there were some faithful in Israel. And Luke introduces us to these faithful, two of these faithful people in Israel, Zechariah. And my, my ESV says Zechariah. Some of yours might say Zechariah. Zechariah, same person, just different spelling. Zechariah of the division of Abijah and his wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And as we'll learn in a moment, these are faithful followers of the Lord. So despite Israel's situation as an occupied nation, despite their situation religiously, as broadly speaking, it's still an unfaithful nation, you have some faithful. 
And that is an encouragement. Zechariah's name means fittingly, as we'll find out, the Lord has remembered again. He is one, one from one of the tribes that wasn't too prominent in the Old Testament, but you can find them listed back in 1 Chronicles 24.10. Elizabeth herself wasn't a priest, but she was from the priestly line as she was a daughter of Aaron. But Luke tells us that they were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. The emphasis here is on their conduct, but it's important to keep in mind that this wasn't merely a recognition of their conduct. In the Old Testament, you have a precedent set for a status of righteousness, a status of righteousness that the Lord bestows upon his people by faith alone. You see it with Abraham and this righteous connotation or this righteous designation, this righteous status, you would say, would bear itself out in righteous conduct, and that is the emphasis here. But we do have to keep in mind that they would have had this righteous status with the Lord based on faith alone, and that is what bore itself out in this blameless walk with him. So they are righteous before God. They conduct themselves blamelessly. And this word blameless, when it's applied to humans in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean absolute sinless perfection. It simply means that if you were to hold them up against God's law, by and large, they were keeping it in their lives. So they were faithful in their marriage. They were faithful in their worship. They were honoring their parents if they still had parents. They were honest in their conduct and so on. They were blameless. They couldn't, you couldn't bring a charge against them for grossly violating God's law. So they can be called blameless before the Lord. They were faithful. That's what it means. They were faithful. But they were what? They were childless. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And to add insult to injury, they're both advanced in years. So the likelihood of them conceiving children well, its past has gotten less and less likely as the years have passed. They are without children, and they're both advanced in years. And so we are in a very difficult situation all the way around. And Elizabeth and Zechariah would have been feeling this. They would have been feeling their personal situation. They would have been feeling the national situation, though they remain blameless. Now, when we read this, However, it should cause us to pause for a moment, shouldn't it? Because this is not the first time you've heard about this situation in Israel. Is it? it? It's not. Abraham and Sarah, exact same situation. Childless into their old age. You also see this with Rebecca, with Rachel, with Hannah. You have this situation where there's a desire for children and children are withheld and you have, especially with Abraham and Sarah, this situation with now they're into old age and the likelihood that they're going to have children passes with every passing year. And this situation is common throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the fulfillment of God's promises, this is, this is amazing, the fulfillment of God's promises often seem endangered because the fulfillment often appears unlikely, even impossible. 
How is God going to make Abraham into a great nation if he doesn't have an heir, if he doesn't have a son? How is that going to happen? And now they're old. How is that going to happen? How is God going to bring that about? How is the promise going to continue if Isaac's wife can't conceive and Jacob's wife can't bear children? But this is the way that God works all the way through the Old Testament. He backs his people into unlikely, even impossible situations for one reason and one reason alone, to make it clear to his people and to the nations around them that he is God and there is no other. Just think about it for a moment. Just think about it for a moment. Think about God rescuing his people from the clutches of a pharaoh out of Egypt through mighty works and wonders, parting the Red Sea and so on. Think about when he delivered his people from Jericho, having them march around the city until the walls fell down. Excuse me? Imagine that he took 300 ragtag warriors to defeat an innumerable army of Amalekites and Midianites. Remember that story? And God's the one who whittled it down to 300. Why? So there'd be no mistake who did that work. It was God, and it was God alone. Think about David as he goes in as a little shepherd boy and defeats this giant warrior who's had won many battles, blaspheming the nation of Israel. David steps in, this young shepherd, and beats him, destroys him, kills him. It's unlikely. And then the promise seems endangered because David, the rightful king, is persecuted by the imposter king Saul for years, and he's on the run, and you wonder, is he ever going to make it to the throne? This is the way God works. And we know, fast-forwarding from this story, fast-forward to the end of Luke, we know that God will save his people through a Roman cross. Through the death of a man on a cross, God will forgive sinners. It looks utterly foolish and hopeless to the world. And then he rises again on the third day and defeats Satan, defeats death, and so that it can be clear that God is the one who saves, not man, not you, not me, not the nations, not the army, God and God alone. That is what we are seeing here with just this statement that they are both Barren, that she is barren and they are both advanced in years. This is an unlikely situation that anything is going to really happen. It should cause our ears to perk up and say, hey, wait a second. Actually, we know the Old Testament. Something is about to happen. So something significant is about to happen in the life of Israel. Well, let's turn to verse 8 here. Now, while he was serving, that's Zechariah, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord to burn incense. So here we have Zechariah. He's fulfilling his duties as a priest. He was selected by lot to serve incense to the Lord in the temple. Twice daily, morning and evening, morning and afternoon, priests would burn the incense before the altar as a perpetual offering before the Lord, according to Exodus 30. 1 through 10. The Mishnah told us that a priest could only do this once in his lifetime, and some priests wouldn't even get to experience in their lifetime. And there's, this is a massive amount, it's likely a massive amount of priests who were serving at the time. 
some say upwards of 18,000, some say even upwards of 24,000, this huge organizational accomplishment to keep all these things in order. And so you would need to draw lots in order to figure who's going to be the one. And Proverbs 16.33 tells us that God is sovereign even over the lots. So at the perfect time, Zechariah is going to be selected to go in and offer incense so that the heavenly visitor can come down and visit and deliver an exceedingly important message. So here we are. He's selected to burn this incense. The whole multitude of the people are outside and they're praying outside. This would, this is, would have been the tradition of what they were to do, praying outside during this hour of incense, offering prayers, offering um, scripture and praising the Lord and praying and so on. And they're waiting for him as he goes in to do this important work. And while he goes in, he, he enters in, it says, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right of the altar of incense. Now, this would have been to the right, if this is the incense, uh, altar of incense, it would have been to the, the right of that, not as uh, Zechariah is walking in. As you walk in, it would have been the showbread over here and the lampstand over here and the altar in front of him. And so the angel would have appeared right here, which would have been to the right of the altar. And this, I think, is just a small little detail that you'd only get from an eyewitness that we learned last week this is very important to Luke as he is writing this gospel. These little details, he is cold from getting all, doing all the research and, and doing the interview, so to speak, and talking to the eyewitnesses and getting all this information. This is a small little detail to let us know that this is, in fact, an eyewitness account. But notice Zechariah's response. I mean, I just, you just read of all these so-called appearances of angels to people. And they talk about how sweet and delicate they were and, and the experience was nice and lovely. And the reality is, if you saw an, a supernatural being like an angel, you'd be utterly terrified. In fact, that's the word that's used here. Zechariah was troubled when he saw, saw him and he fell and fear fell upon him. The word here means he was absolutely terrified. Like horror movie terrified. Like this is not like, oh, that's beautiful. This is like, get me out of here. I'm about to die. It's not flippant. It's not giddy. He's not talkative. Blabbing back and forth. He is utterly terrified. And that's the response one would have in the presence of a supernatural being like this heavenly visitor. But I love this. So we, we've seen the unlikely scenario. We see the heavenly visitor. Now we're on to the, gra the gracious promise. This is verses 13 through 17, if you're following along on your outline. Watch how this heavenly visitor immediately comforts Zechariah. Zechariah is troubled. He's frightened. He is terrified. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. So the word for fear, it says that Zechariah was fearful. He's afraid. The angel uses the exact same word back to him, saying, don't be that way. Don't be fearful. And then he uses his name. Think very clearly just this massive, powerful being in, who you were terrified to even be in the presence of. And he gently responds, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Calls him by his first name. Do not be afraid. Why should he be afraid. Why? Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What prayer? 
what prayer has been heard? Well, he tells us what prayer. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. They had been praying for children. And now, some suggest that they wouldn't have been praying in the later part of the years because they would have known, you know, they're old. You don't have children when you're old and, and so on. But you know what? They had the Old Testament. They knew the scriptures. They knew the story. I think it's also possible they're praying for the restoration of Israel alongside of praying for a child. And it just so happens that it's all going to come together in this one promise. And I think we need to observe here something really important for how we view God and his work in the world. We can't neglect to observe how God interweaves his redemptive plan with the requests of his people. You see what's happening here? Their prayer had been answered. The answer to that prayer is a child, and yet that child is not going to be just any ordinary child. He is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He is right in the center of God's redemptive plan, and yet it is in response to a prayer they had for a child. They longed for children, they prayed for children, and God was going to give them their heart's desire, while at the same time fulfilling his divine plan for their redemption. Like I've already said, it is likely that they are praying for the the restoration of Israel, something that they expected from the Old Testament. And so this prayer for a child was interweaved with God's plan to fulfill Israel's salvation and restoration. See, God's not merely out to get glory for himself at the expense of his people. He's out to get glory for sure. There's no doubt he's out to get glory. That's clear. He is going to glorify himself He is going to get glory for himself and his son, but he accomplishes this through his people and often through the granting of their godly requests. He cares about Zechariah and Elizabeth in a special way. But nevertheless, although he is answering their request for a son, he is going to be a special gift, not only to them, but to the nation of Israel. He will also have a special assignment. He will have a special place in redemptive history. God will name the child, not the parents. God will. And that's a mark of God taking this child and saying, he is mine, this is a special, he is going to be mine for a special purpose. Watch what he says here. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You're not going to name himself after name him after yourself or after an ancestor. He'll name, his, he will bear the name that I choose for him because he will be my man to to accomplish my mission. So he names him, and he will be special. Verse fourteen, and you will have joy and gladness. Isn't this delightful? God again concerned about the joy and gladness of his people. This is fulfilled actually in. Verses uh, 57 and 58 of chapter 1. Verse 57 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Why? Because she had a son. She had a child. They knew her history. They knew her situation. They're rejoicing with her. Angel says, You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
But not just because this child has been born, not just because of that, but also because he will be great before the Lord. He will be used for a special purpose. And that explains why in verse 15, the latter part of verse 15, it says he must not drink any wine or strong drink. He must not drink any wine or strong drink. The, the Bible doesn't forbid, and we don't have time to get into this, but the Bible doesn't forbid the taking of alcohol. It just, it just doesn't. But there is precedent in the scripture for the setting aside of a, a priest or a leader in that they won't use alcohol. And that's the case here. It's not that the Bible is all of a sudden now forbidding alcohol. It's just saying, guess what? John is going to be set aside for a special purpose. And for that reason, he will not drink wine or strong drink. Rather, he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here comes the tricky verse. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. What does this mean? What does that mean? Well, some have argued that this means that John was regenerate and he was saved from conception or very early on in his mother's womb. He was saved. I don't take that position because I, I think it doesn't understand John's, John's role as a transitional figure in redemptive history. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets and he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament came upon people for special purposes. In this situation, I would argue with John is no different. To be filled with the Holy Spirit pre-Pentecost and post-Pentecost are two qualitatively different things. Like when Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, and he instructs us to be filled with the Spirit. He's speaking in a new covenant context where the indwelling of the Spirit is permanent. It's new. And it's different qualitatively from the Old Covenant. In fact, the, the newness of the New Covenant is, in, is found in large measure not only in the forgiveness of sin, but in this permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant would be inaugurated at Jesus' death and his resurrection. See, John has a special place in God's redemptive plan. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew that of any man born of woman, there's no one greater than John. Not that John was some sort of ontologically superior to other people. He's talking about his place in redemptive history. Ain't nobody gonna be the forerunner except for John. He's got a wonderful, amazing place in redemptive history. But Jesus also says this, believe it or not. He says, even those who are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John. What does that mean? It means that if you believe in Jesus and are a recipient of the new covenant, you're in a better position than the forerunner of the Messiah. Better to be a Christian today, know Jesus, the resurrected Jesus now, have the Holy Spirit indwelling you than to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Can you believe that? And so, here, what I, th I think we're, what we're seeing here with this filling of the Holy Spirit is simply designating John as someone who is special in redemptive history. He has a special place, a special work, but this filling of the Spirit will be different post-ascension, post-Pentecost. 
So I don't think it's right for us to, to conclude that he was saved in his mother's womb. You must believe in the Lord and his word and his gospel in order to be saved. Nevertheless, he, the, the angel has told Zechariah that this son will be great. Why will he be great? Verse 16 tells us, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He is going to have a mission of repentance. He is going to do a preparatory work to get people ready for somebody. And as we'll see, to get them ready for God himself. Verse 17, it says, He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And what will he do? He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Like Elijah, he is going to provoke repentance in Israel. He's going to get Israel ready for a great work of God. And that's what John is going to do. He's going to be a preparatory figure to get Israel ready for their Messiah. Notice he'll do this. He'll specifically do this. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And then he says, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. There's going to be a practical work here. People will turn to the Lord their God, and that will bear itself out in practical obedience, practical, tangible obedience and life change. All throughout the Old Testament, you have Israel being rebuked constantly for bringing in religion and yet having a life to completely bereft of obedience and love to neighbor. Oh yeah, but they could offer all, offer all kinds of worship and sacrifices and on and on and on, and yet they would go home and oppress their neighbor and beat their wife and do whatever else, yet thinking they're covering themselves because they got all their religion taken care of. No, when John comes, he's going to turn their hearts to the Lord their God in true repentance, and that true repentance will bear itself out in practical ways, namely relationship and falling in this life of wisdom. That's the work that he is going to do. And what is he doing? He is preparing the people for the Lord. He has an exciting ministry, as we'll find out later in Luke. He has a dangerous ministry. Verse 18, however, let's look at uh, the next point. We, see, we saw an unlikely scenario. We saw a heavenly visitor. We just got a gracious promise. Things are looking up. Things are looking good for Zechariah. But <laughs> Zechariah is incredulous. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Well, that wasn't the right response. It's not what you want to say to this angel, is it? The angel answered him, at, it probably, I don't think it's reading between the lines to hear a severe tone at this point. I am Gabriel. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know whose business I, I come with? I speak on behalf of the Lord. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, this gospel. 
And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words. Now hold on a second. Hold on a second because some of you are already thinking, wait, if we read a little further, I know of another story about someone who appeared incredulous and they didn't get rebuked. Her name is Mary. What's going on here? What gives? Is Gabriel partial to women? No, no, not at all. Not at all. He's not partial. Let's actually look over. Let's, let's resolve this difficulty. Let's look over here a few verses um, where, with, uh, at Gabriel's visit to Mary. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled. Again, this is what happens when you're in the presence of a, a supernatural being. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will, there will be no end. I mean, it's a lot grander than the promise to uh, Zechariah, but it's still, Zechariah still got a, a, a wonderful promise. So you, you have similar things here. He, Abra, uh, Gabriel visits, they're troubled. He gives a great promise, and then, response, verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how shall this be, since I'm a virgin? And you're thinking, boom, nail her with the inability to speak or something, I don't know. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, I'll tell you how it's going to happen. Mary, listen to this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and so on. And you think... Something isn't jiving here. What's the deal? Why, why the response to Zechariah this way and not to Mary? What, what happened? Well, we're actually told that Gabriel tells us. He gives us insight into what happened. The situations are very similar except this one thing. Verse 20, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. There is a world of difference between unbelieving questions and believing questions. Zechariah asked an unbelieving question. He wanted to see a sign. He didn't think this was possible given his present circumstances. Mary, we can assume, believed the, the word and the promise and just was curious about how is this going to be carried out. Zechariah was unbelieving. Mary, it seems, was believing and so Zechariah is rebuked for his unbelief. He didn't believe the words of Gabriel, which would have been the very words uh, from, of God because Gabriel was sent as a messenger of the Lord. And his discipline that he will have to bear for the next several months will that he will be able, unable to speak and he'll be silent. So he will be under the Lord's discipline for a few months because of his unbelief. We have to keep in mind, however, that Zechariah, we've already seen this, was a righteous man, wasn't he? He's a righteous man. He was blameless in God's sight. This was not characteristic for this man. He had a lapse of faith. You know what's encouraging about that? Because apparently you can be blameless and yet have a lapse of faith. 
So that's encouraging. But nevertheless, he is going to bear the Lord's discipline and be under this uh, inability to speak for several months. Also, I think we should see here that in God's providence, this discipline is going to disable Zechariah from spreading this news prematurely. He's going to be unable to say things about what has happened and the details of the, the promise and so on. And that's probably a good situation. And Elizabeth's going to hide herself away so that this news doesn't spread prematurely so that it can continue in the way that God has it planned and the way it should go. And so again, we see God's amazing providence here working in the details, even in the detail of this rebuke. Well, here we come to the marvelous fulfillment. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. This marvelous fulfillment. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me, and in the days when he looked upon me to take away my approach from among people. So, Zechariah finishes up his service, verse 23. It says his service was ended he went home to his wife, and she conceived. Prior to that, she, when he stepped out of the, the temple, he tried to make signs and remained mute. The language seems to suggest that he wasn't able to communicate very clearly or communicate anything at all. But he finishes out his service, and he went to his home. We're not given exact timing. But after these days, it said clearly that Elizabeth against all all odds, conceives and is now pregnant. An absolute unlikely situation here now finds Elizabeth with child. We know that something amazing is going to happen. And we also see here, look at how she responds. Verse 25 again, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among people. In Israel, it was very difficult to be a, child, a childless wife. Israel was built on the family. You might say that's the way God was working. He was establishing this nation and he's building families. And there would have been some sort of social reproach for being without child. And that's why she says this. And again, don't we see the kindness of the Lord working practically in a woman's life who desired to be a mommy and God grants her that request while at the same time fulfilling his plan of redemption. He cares about his people in large ways and in small ways. Here, Elizabeth's story is interweaved with the grand story of redemption. Her reproach has been taken away. She can rejoice over having a child. And at the same time, she's going to come to learn she can rejoice because this child will be great in the eyes of the Lord and bear a special place in God's plan of redemption. So that's, that's the narrative of John the Baptist's birth being foretold. That's the narrative. What can we learn? What are we being taught? What can we draw out of this passage? I think most importantly, we see that salvation is the work of the Lord. We've already said it before, but God often is backing his people into inescapable corners so that it can be clearly seen that he is the one who delivers them. 
This is all throughout the Old Testament. This is all throughout the Psalms. The lament comes before the deliverance. This is the theme of redemption. God is removing any hint of human contribution to the work of redemption so that no one will boast in his presence. This is Paul's whole argument in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 30, that the cross appearing foolish to the world, a dying man, a dead man on the cross can't save anybody, would in turn be the way that many sinners are forgiven. So that no one can claim wisdom. No one can claim to have gotten themselves in right standing with God. So that you would have to look at God and say it was his doing that put us in Christ Jesus who became our redemption and our wisdom and so on. And the goal of all of that is so that no one will boast in the presence of the Lord. God is the one who set up this situation with Elizabeth and Zechariah. God is the one who kept the womb closed until this time. God will be the one to be shown that he is the one who brings about redemption. Even with the forerunner of the Messiah, God will have to bring it about in a very unlikely way where you're brought almost to the point of final despair and then the child is given. This is how God works in his plan of redemption and often how he works in our lives, in various circumstances. This is no promise that people will have children if they just wait long enough, but it is a promise that God is working in your life in such a way to make impossible-seeming situations bear amazing fruit. And right now, you can't even begin to see how that's going to take place. You don't even know. You can't see it. Your eyes are blinded through tears, and you need a promise of the way God works your situation is probably, from a human perspective, impossible right now. Would you take a lesson and encouragement from the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, which is the story of the scripture? God will get glory for being the one who delivers you, him and him alone. But his inconceivable conception would be followed by an impossible conception wouldn't it? I'm so excited to hear next week's sermon because Elizabeth had a husband. Mary won't. At least not in a situation where conception can happen naturally. The womb of the virgin, in the womb of the virgin, the son of God would be conceived utterly impossible from a human perspective, a unilateral work of God to bring about the redemption of sinners. This is the way God works. And I'll close with this. Let's also see the kindness of the Lord to his people in this passage. In fulfilling his redemptive plan, God provides his people with gracious blessings and he keeps his promises despite their sin. We didn't get a chance to touch on it. But even though Zechariah disbelieves for that moment, it's not as though Gabriel steps back and says, well, you know, I was told if you didn't believe, God said to just go to plan B, and I'm gonna, we're going to set you aside, Zechariah, and we're going to go to someone else. God fulfilled his promise through this family despite his unbelief. What is that? That's grace. That's grace. And so let's take from this seeing the kindness of the Lord to be gracious to his people despite their sin. Let's place our whole trust in this good God and give up relying upon ourselves. Salvation 
is from the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story, which is truly the story of Scripture. You are God, and you are the only one who can deliver, and you will be seen as the only one who can deliver. You will receive the glory. We thank you that you are a God who works this way because we can find great comfort in it. You will deliver us, even when things look bleak. You will deliver us, and ultimately deliver into the safety of your kingdom, even as Spiritually, we are troubled day in and day out. You will deliver us. God, help us to believe these things. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.